This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Quick reminder before we go to this week's episode that Intelligence Squared's award-winning series, How I Found My Voice, is back for season three, featuring the world's greatest artists and cultural figures. Host Samira Ahmed goes behind the fame to understand what shapes and inspires their voice. This season features the likes of Oscar award-winning actor Kate Winslet speaking about her life and career and whether there was room on that raft for Leonardo DiCaprio in the film Titanic and an upcoming episode with author of The Testaments and The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood. Discover what you've never known about some of the world's leading actors, writers and cultural figures by searching for How I Found My Voice on Apple, Spotify, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this Friday episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by Marita Shaka, the International Director of Policy at Stanford's Cyber Policy Centre to discuss democracy and civil liberties in the age of big tech. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast in the last few weeks, you'll know that we recently held a debate on whether it was right for big tech to deplatform Trump. And we originally invited Marita to speak in that debate. But after it became clear that her thoughts on this were bigger than the question of deplatforming Trump, we decided to invite her on to discuss the myriad ways big tech is impacting things like free speech, journalism, politics and elections in 2021 and beyond. It's a really fascinating conversation and it was chaired by Carl Miller and we hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Carl Miller. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Marita Shaka, International Director of Policy of Stanford Cyber Policy Centre. She was a member of the European Parliament from the Netherlands between 2009 and 19 and writes regularly in the Financial Times about the impact of big tech on democracy and civil liberties. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yes, good to see you. Good to see you as well. So, Marita, let's let's jump in with the most recent and one of the highest profile face-offs in the whole world of tech regulation, Facebook versus Australia. What's your reading of all of this? I mean, is is this is this different to the kind of the the previous kind of um, confrontations we've seen between big tech and states? I would say so, because first of all, Australia is a democracy and there's been a lot of debate about the merits of the law. And I have my own thoughts about, for example, the the influence of, of Rupert Murdoch and his media empire, which, you know, is another titan in this fight. Uh, but I do think that once democratically elected and democratically accountable lawmakers propose a law and then to see a tech giant, in this case, Facebook, but also Google, really use very provocative, heavy-handed lobbying tactics like threatening to leave the country as Google did, you know, in the case of its search engine, and then on Facebook's part to overnight 
disable the ability to link to Australian news sources and from Australian news sources worldwide on the platform, you you really do have to wonder, is this the first step, you know, of, of more leveraging of the integration of the platform in so many public spheres, you know, to, to really protect their own business model or their own lack of transparency, as may have been the reason, or is this a failed experiment that has led to a lot of backlash? I mean, the world over people have been, you know, upset about this, this very blunt way of making an opinion known on the part of Facebook. So I think we'll have to see what the actual fallout is. What stood out to me is if you look at the arguments we've heard from Facebook over the past decade, it was always about building a community and protecting free speech and connecting the world. While in a number of countries where the platform is active, there have been significant harms, whether we're talking about election-related violence or laws that have brought about huge problems for Facebook users, you know, lack of freedom after expression on the platform, where we heard so little from Facebook, so little protest, certainly no abandoning of certain services in light of these risks for users. So I think What the Australia case makes very clear is that the bottom line, its business model, is actually what matters. And and all the talk about freedom of expression, connecting the world, you know, feeling as a responsible digital citizen or whatnot kind of talk we may have heard should really be considered, you know, lipstick on a pig. <laughs> and and um, you, you mentioned at the beginning there another centre of power in, in Rupert Murdoch. I'm just interested in getting your kind of reading of the landscape here so so was this was this the sign of kind of big media in a way also trying to precipitate a fight back against you know their own business models being demolished that they've seen over the last 10 years or so for sure i mean it's a very similar fight that we see in a number of societies i was watching that sort of uh, set of arguments playing out when i was in the european parliament as a member dealing with the copyright directive in Europe, where very similar, you heard the arguments from the publishers who would normally invoke protecting press freedom, for example, you know, a very worthy goal. But if you look at how journalists, freelancers are treated, I think people, people know well that they are often paid very, very little, sent into harm's way without much of protection, uh, thinking about photographers earning hardly anything for photographs, even if they're taken in war zones. And, and the publishers also... Uh, oftentimes seeking to optimize their, their profits more than anything else. So I, I do think it's always important to pierce through the sort of framing and the lobbying arguments that we hear. I mean, when I heard arguments that the Australian law, you know, would basically destroy the open internet, I was just thinking, I mean, you know, I think we have more blame to go around about when the open internet no longer was open and the role that big corporations that are selling ads like Facebook played in that. So there's there's so many arguments that should really be sort of challenged uh, if you actually want to get to the core of what's going on. But I think the real question here is, you know, how can we make sure that democracy leads in how we understand some of these, you know, back and forth between big companies and what is what is the price being paid by citizens and journalists alike? Mm. In in one of your uh, excellent pieces on this, you, you you wrote a sentence which has really stuck with me, which is it is worth being clear about these battles at the outset that only one party has a democratic mandate; the other two, which I think you mean the media and Facebook, do not. So it kind of sounds like your moral compass 
when trying to navigate the sometimes really quite intricate legal and political disputes leans towards democratic authorities over any kind of concentration of corporate power. 100% it does. And that takes us very interestingly to the next big showdown of the last few months between a democratic polity and a corporate entity, and that is Trump versus Twitter, and more broadly Trump versus social media platforms. Um, Why was this, for so many commentators, do you think a far more difficult and, and fraught kind of judgment to strike? I don't know if it was, but I think what we saw happening there when Twitter initially started and then uh, other platforms followed in banning Donald Trump, the individual, from using their services after obviously facilitating the development of his you know, big online platforms, his megaphone online for years, uh, a couple of things became visible. One, how much power these companies really have. I mean, I believe it's equally powerful to say, you're welcome. The red carpet is out for you. You know, if you want to reach hundreds of millions of people worldwide with your lies, attacks on the press, attacks on minorities, you're more than welcome with us. That's a very powerful choice to make. And it's similarly powerful to then say, sir, we're moving your your uh, megaphone away from you. You may find a platform elsewhere. But for a lot of people, it was the first time that it became so clear to them how much agency these uh, companies really have over parts of the debate, the political debate, the the sowing of divisions, you know, the the spreading of hatred. And it all, of course, uh, culminated in this attack on the US Capitol, which was a game changer for the platforms, similar to how COVID was a game changer for the platforms, because suddenly this was about disinformation leading to life and death. This was about speech leading to threats to public safety. So I think a different set of concepts than the narrow lens of free speech that have been so dominant in the United States. Now, what do I think about the bigger picture here? Again, I would would have loved to see more rule of law based um, articulations of responsibilities, liabilities on the part of companies. I do not think it's a good idea that boardrooms decide on where the limits of free speech lie. But given that this is still a choice that companies can make, you do have to wonder why they do not make more principled decisions against bullying, attacks on women, attacks on politicians, attacks on the free press, attacks on public health. There's so much vitriol going around on social media platforms that I think they're probably shying away tons of other users that are just, you know, there are no voice in this debate because they've kind of given up a long time ago. So would you have supported a ban on Trump in in circumstances where his activity wasn't fundamentally anti-democratic? I'm I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, this this kind of like, I mean, if you boil it down in very simplistic terms, there's a very huge, there's a huge difference between in Australia, where we support democratic authorities over corporate power and in the States where... Um, and the reason I said it was friendly is that I think lots of commentators ended up landing basically being supportive of, of Twitter and Facebook and basically saying they should have acted sooner rather than later. But in supporting, in essence, what was the expression of corporate power again over a democratically elected um, authority. Yeah, although I would say it's a little bit different in the sense that in the case of Donald Trump, he still had the platform, so to say, or the position 
to speak from that he had as president of the United States through the White House account, uh, through the plenty of media platforms that would, you know, amplify what he had to say in an official press conference and whatnot. I think the difference here was what he sought to communicate to his constituents in attacks on the democratic process, for example, questioning the legitimacy of the elections against the reading of all official authorities and the context that Twitter identified where they saw people following his lead with the words that he was using. And they did not want to sort of facilitate uh, the challenges to public order, public safety. And, you know, that's a choice that I, I wish these complicated choices between, you know, where the freedom of expression ends, where public safety is at stake, public health is at stake, would not all be in the hands of, of companies. I think it's an outcome that should have been prevented much earlier. But in the absence of laws that are very clear, I can, cannot blame companies from using the freedom that they have to decide what, which rules apply in their club. And their clubs happen to be huge. Think about Facebook, think about YouTube, which you know gets away with a lot in this debate. Uh, and think about Twitter that has been more proactive in drawing moral lines. And they've also been open when they thought they didn't do it you know, as well as they should have. So this is an evolving field in the absence of democratic clarity. And I think that's where the focus should be. I don't think that the discussion about is it a good or a bad thing that Donald Trump no longer has a Twitter account is really the core of the issue. I think the core of the issue is when does commercially governed and commercially amplified information begin to harm the public interest and how do we balance back for public values, democratic interests and rule of law type processes in this space. Mm. Okay, well, let's move to stop number three, which is um, the parlor ban. So just to catch everyone up, parlor, an alt tech platform very much built on principles of, in, in their own eyes, freedom of speech over mitigation against online harm was kind of removed from app stores and operating systems across the internet, meaning that um, it's been offline, only just actually, I believe, recovered a few days ago in, in, in some form. What do you think that says to us about the real locus of power in these kinds of decisions? Because it seems there that actually there was this kind of whole subterranean world of operating systems and device control and, 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 and app stores and payment layers that we actually really don't talk that much about in, in a lot of regulatory debates. We really just talk about the kind of the big, you know, the, the, the big platforms we can all see. But it seemed that there actually there was an enormous amount of capacity really to control which platforms we can even use in the first place. No, absolutely. And, and this brings us to a sort of component of the regulatory discussion that in Europe is actually quite prominently featured, which is, you know, the question of gatekeepers and, and market power that certain actors may have, even if we may not consider them, you know, platforms or, or big tech necessarily. So that would be uh, hosting services, you know, app stores, as you mentioned, a whole host of services that are not as visible, but that certainly, you know, play key roles in in facilitating the exchange of information and speech as such. So what the EU twin regulations between the Digital Services Act and the Digital Market Act is trying to do is to say, we, the democratic bodies of the EU, are going to spell out more about what we think 
liability and responsibility imply for content moderation on the one hand, but also for uh, market power. So basically, if you have a gatekeeper role in the ecosystem, that should bring responsibilities, for example, against abusing that gatekeeper role for monopolistic or anti-competitive tendencies. Do you think that will also extend to responsibilities around online harm from non the non-platform bits of the of the ecosystem? I'm just thinking, you know, we're, we're, do you think we're moving towards a world where, you know, there'll there'll be much more kind of regulatory attention being cast over, you know, the rules around what apps can be sold or not sold, as well as, you know, what Facebook's specific kind of content moderation guidelines for instance are? Yeah, I think they all go together. I mean, if you have, for example, data protection standards and then an app pops up that doesn't meet those standards, surely you have to make sure that those standards are enforced wherever they may be at stake. But it it has to cut both ways. So it it should be, you know, sort of positive obligation on the part of, you know, the, the people who develop the apps, the companies who develop the apps, but also an obligation on the part of the gatekeepers so that they would not claim to, for example, prevent harms, but in fact, sustain their own monopolistic position. I think it's all about, you know, which rule is there to enforce uh, against which harms. And sometimes they're blurred conveniently by those who have the power to actually leverage it in their own benefits. Let's, Let's talk about regulation in some of the kind of murkier and more complicated parts of the way the platforms work. And especially here, I'd like to get your thoughts on the kind of content recommendation engines, which so many people have pointed to for a long time now as being one of the real focal parts of the problem. You know, these are the, you know, YouTube kind of recommendation or or, or, or kind of Twitter curation algorithms, which, you know, many suppose really have been designed to keep us on their platform and kind of almost accidentally have served up a whole kind of, you know, decade of kind of, you know, hate and anger and polarization, you know, it being the kind of stickiest content, which will make us stay the longest and, and, and form the deepest emotional connections. Are you, are you optimistic about the kind of capacity for legislators and regulators to really begin to kind of roll their sleeves up and rummage in the actual way the platforms work? You know, I think it's um, a chicken or an egg discussion because I hear so often from people representing the platforms that politicians don't understand how the internet and they often mean their own service works. But the reality is that there is a huge lack of transparency being offered into how their platforms actually work. I mean, not only to politicians or uh, regulators for that matter, but also to academics. I mean, I work at Stanford University. It's at the heart of Silicon Valley. There's actually close relations with the big tech platforms. And despite a lot of hard work, it's been tremendously difficult for academics to even get the kind of data access that they need in order to do scientific research. So I do think that that making sure that there's meaningful access to information with which I'm trying to say the right people have access to the right kind of information. So sometimes a regulator with a specific mandate should be able to probe further than let's say the average citizen. And for some, you know, understanding of of what certain information means, let's say uh, the workings of algorithms uh, against certain standards, you also need the kind of expertise to understand. I mean, if they would sort of for, for, for example, put, you know, some kind of uh, software code on the front page of the New York Times, nobody would quite understand. So I think the real question is, 
who needs which kind of access to information to make sure that there's an ability to assess whether the law is respected, to allow for the uh, mandated institutions, regulators, uh, oversight bodies to actually look where they need to look, but also for the general public, journalists, civil society representatives, citizens, parliamentarians, watchdogs of all sorts, to actually be able to understand what is going on. It's too easy to say, Ugh, nobody understands this except for us. The big question is how come? And often we see big tech hiding behind trade secrets, uh, keeping information as discretionary as possible, doing self-reporting on all kinds of interventions. And I, I really think it just is unsustainable to keep going on that way. Can can you see a a world where the tech giants voluntarily give that kind of access up to, to the, the actual engineering of the platforms? I don't think it will generally come voluntarily. And even if incidentally, there may be some voluntary efforts, you know, you always have to regulate not for the best case, but for the worst case. So you cannot rely on any kind of goodwill or nice promises or good intentions on the part of engineers or business leaders. You have to make sure that a rule applies equally, that there's a level playing field for those who are willing or unwilling. I mean, we also don't don't, for example, collect taxes from those who are willing to hand it over. You know, we, we want to make sure that everybody complies because normally the voluntary compliance is, is simply not sufficient. And do, in that sense, is, is the world ahead one where there's going to be many more and bigger kind of Facebook versus Australia's? Do, 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 do you think there's going to be this kind of change in the kind of tempo and, the, and the, almost like the underlying philosophy and intent of the engagement of democratic authorities around the world with big tech. Like, are we reaching the end of the stage where governments were asking and we're beginning to enter a stage where governments will be telling big tech what to do? I hope so. Because I think the self-regulatory phase has just, you know, been utterly disappointing. And it is really time to make sure that the foundations of our open societies, you know, the, the core anchors of our democracies are not disrupted. I mean, the excitement about disrupting certain markets, I think, has been mis- misguided when you look at what it's done to, uh, you know, the media, for example, and, and what the side effects have been of market disruptions to polarization, you know, the, the growth and, and fostering of online extremism spilling into the streets because clearly the online world and the offline world are, are not divorced. They're actually one and the same. So it's important to, to look at how much power and agency we actually want to give to business models that may be very good at selling ads but that are very bad at safeguarding for, you know, protecting minorities or a pluralistic debate or the ability to apply oversight and respect laws as they've been made, you know, over the centuries. So I think the question is really, where do you want to start in understanding what next steps are needed from a regulatory point of view? And I often see the question, you know, which technology should be regulated for? But I actually think we need to start with the principles that we want to safeguard and empower the regulators, empower the needed authorities to to apply, you know, those principles to assess whether they're respected in practice. And, and that's where the mechanisms that are used for antitrust enforcement are really interesting because antitrust rules are fairly simple. They need some updating to consider how digital economies work, but essentially you cannot be a monopolist you cannot form a cartel, you cannot make price agreements, 
you know, or, or discriminate on the basis of price at the expense of the consumer. That's roughly the framework of antitrust rules. And it, it doesn't matter whether dairy farmers or car producers or insurers or search engines are violating, you know, and, and the authorities that have to probe are highly skilled, but also have strong mandates to probe. In other words, it's impossible for a party on their investigation to just slam the door and say access denied. And sort of that sort of mechanism where the principle is fairly simple and clear and where the enforcement is very empowered and resourced is the kind of mechanism that I think we need to apply to non-discrimination, data protection, access to information, etc., etc. If If we glue all those principles up, and we kind of saw as high as we can above the what I imagine must be hundreds of different kind of legal regulatory regimes which will need to be created to kind of mould and reshape what digital life looks like. What what in essence do you think is the is the kind of explicit vision that the EU has around what the internet should look like? Because we know what the we know what Silicon Valley thinks the internet should look like. You know, there's no, <laughs> and in many ways, the internet kind of does look like that. What, what, what's the kind of counter vision which, which, which the EU needs to put forwards? Yeah, I actually wish that the EU would speak more in terms of that vision instead of announcing each, you know, piece of a regulatory puzzle individually, just because it confuses people and it feeds those who want to claim that, you know, another day, another regulation from Brussels, you know. I think the vision roughly is that, um, certain principles and values need to be preserved no matter which technological disruption and that there should be protection of the public interest, protection and and resiliency of democracy and a process that mirrors the rule of law. I would say that that is what the EU is trying to do and it has a lot of obstacles there. You know, clearly there's not enough growth in the digital field coming from the EU itself There is a lot of fragmentation, not only between policy areas, but also between member states, which is a problem, sometimes incompetences. So when you think about, you know, all the pressure about 5G and Huawei, one of the problems for the EU to respond was that you have, on the one hand, this promise of a single market, meaning a level playing field for companies to operate on the basis of the same rules throughout the European Union. But you also have national security competence resting with member states, meaning 27 different readings of when national security may be at stake when a company, for example, a network provider or 5G equipment provider, you know, enters into the market and the question whether this poses a risk. Now, this kind of fragmentation is unsustainable in light of the intersection of geopolitics and technology as we see it emerging, where it's really hard to separate out economic interests, national security interests and human rights interests, just to mention another, I think, vital angle. But the policy divisions don't always match the new integrated reality of the technologies. And this is something the EU has to really, really work on. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges, big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. So, so ma- maintaining this broadest possible bird's eye view of what's going to be happening, you've got, if we have this, you know, we've got the Silicon Valley vision and we've got an, a European Union vision, which, you know, is going to be increasingly kind of aggressively expressed, I suppose, or, 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 or kind of protected. I'm interested in knowing what your what you think the kind of most fundamental and 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 important friction points will be. So, so of all of this, what are the bits that you know actually the Europe, Europe, and the and, and and Silicon Valley can probably work out? You know, maybe okay, content moderation—they're not doing enough of it. They're not doing it quickly enough. But you know, nothing fundamental needs to change. They just need to spend more money on it. And which, you know, which bits you just think there's going to be something really, really important kind of tectonic conflict, like the business model just isn't acceptable, the market concentration just isn't acceptable. Well, I do believe that this question of how much transparency and access to information will be a huge battlefield because I think, you know, the discretion that the companies have to collect data, to repurpose it, to, you know, discern and learn for their own business model at the expense of public knowledge, at the expense of awareness about people's privacy violations, uh, at the expense of also collective understanding of how things work. For example, this disinformation question. It may well be that there is an overestimation of how much algorithmic amplification and the business model and the machine learning processes and the you know automated recommendations, for example, have. It could well be. I mean, I don't think so because I think many incidents have shown you know, the, the problems here. But to say for sure without the kind of independent research that we need is hard. And so... You know, there's, there's a lot of power resting within these technological or digital businesses that we simply cannot understand well enough, even if the effects and also the costs, the harms, the problematic impact is 
leaning, you know, pushing on society. And so I think that that imbalance is urgent, but I also think that the, that the companies will use trade secrets, as I mentioned, and other kinds of legal shields that they enjoy now, Section 230 being another one for the moment, you know, to really push back against liability, responsibility, accountability. So I foresee big battles there. The question will be, can sort of new floors be built on existing frameworks, antitrust, data protection, national security concerns, or are there are there gaps between those existing policy frameworks that need to be filled? And if so, which are they? And I would imagine that in the space of AI, for example, where there's so much combining of data, you know, developing on top of data, there's a lot that needs to be specifically regulated for. Um, there's other kinds of technologies that tend to very directly encroach on the role of the state. Think about digital currencies or digital arms, you know, that, that touch upon the sovereignty, financial sovereignty, but also questions around the monopoly on, on the use of force. Very core concepts to the role of a state where I expect at least clarifications on what is considered an acceptable market development and what is not. So there's a catching up process that has certainly begun, but that is not finished, you know, by a long stretch. Do you think it is a foregone conclusion that when the powers of a state collide with the powers of a giant company or a series of giant companies that states will eventually prevail? I think the Australia Facebook case really shows that the question is how big the state is and whether the states are able to work together. So one problem that I think we see when we zoom in on democratic states, and I really wish that the distinction between the role of governments was more often clarified to mean an authoritarian or a democratic government, just because the legitimacy is so fundamentally different. But in the debate, it's convenient often for the tech companies to talk about, oh, heaven forbid that government would intervene. Whereas, you know, there's a big difference between the Chinese government making, making a move or, let's say, the, the British government making a move. Anyway, what I think is needed to have a meaningful answer to, on the one hand, the privatization of power through tech companies, whether they're big or small. On the other hand, the sort of techno-authoritarianism is better cooperation between democracies to develop a governance model that clarifies those different elements we talked about um, and creates a level playing field between democracies to facilitate you know, the, the flow of data with the proper data protections, um, to, to make sure that, for example, human rights criteria when it comes to the use of technology are spelled out clearly, to make sure that supply chains are secure or that there's you know, proper, proper checks for national security standards or cyber security standards and so on and so forth. The integrity of electoral processes, another very important anchor that democracies share. Um, that is what I hope can be achieved. But if, if you look at the European example and how much national governments cling to their, their own you know, space to make decisions. I don't think it'll be easy, but, but it's imaginable that the push and the competition and really the threats coming both from privatizing the digital layer of our lives in terms of governance and leaving it to authoritarian states combined is really you know, 
of, of such crucial order that democracies will choose to work together. Mm. Final question and, and a difficult but important one, I think. Let's just add the, the kind of third kind of, you know, circ in the Venn diagram, which is kind of citizen power. So, you know, I think so many people will feel like this debate shapes their lives in many ways, but is also being done in quite a distant way where governments and regulators and tech giants kind of, you know, do, do battle in forums which citizens don't have access to. What can citizens do? You know, what can civic society do? What's their role and what's their agency here? Obviously, I believe that, you know, people have opportunities to make choices about which products they want to use to push their elected representatives to do more to protect democratic agency. But principally, I don't think we can expect individual citizens to stand up sufficiently in light of the armies of lawyers, armies of engineers, armies of designers that make it so much easier to simply click yes, accept to all, instead of making an educated decision about, you know, the consequences of, of those settings. And clearly, even, you know, the, the most tech savvy, well-educated, you know, properly informed people will struggle to really appreciate what kinds of consequences are attached to those decisions. Similarly, I see super hopeful civic tech initiatives, people building better technology, you know, public interest tech. It's, it's a huge area of inspiration. But for, for these alternative models to gain ground, there needs to be some regulatory requirements. For example, Cory Doctorow speaks about this notion of adversarial interoperability, meaning that the, the platforms need to accept competing companies to interoperate with their technologies and not to be allowed to push them out. This sort of question about the role of gatekeepers again. You know, there will have to be some provisions in place for that kind of competition in the public interest, that kind of alternative being built to have a chance. Because otherwise, these people, and we hear this over and over again, who are trying to build more public interest tech are going to run into walls that are commercial walls that will push them out just because, you know, the, the alternatives are seen as too competing with the business models. Mm. Actually, one final question, because you, you touched on something which we've actually spoken about before on Intelligence Squared, which is, you know, this kind of uh, link up of, of technology design and psychology and, you know, behaviorism, which can often kind of bundle together into very, very potent methodologies for, for creating itches that we all have to use that app or use that device. Is, is, is that an area perhaps one of others joined by others as well, where where they've just been kind of regulatory blind spots in a way and, and that they should be governed by rules. But currently, as far as I know, there are no rules whatsoever for, for how you wrap together technology and psychology. Yeah, I think it's a whole field um, along with biotech where the integration of the human body and technology is going ever further. You know, those those. Questions about the integrity of the body, human agency, human autonomy, the freedom of choice, which is all so essential for the notion of a democracy, uh, will all have to be answered. And um, in the meantime, the standards and the norms are being set by companies. And I think that that's an undesirable situation. But yes, that's that's the reality that we, we currently have have ongoing. 
Well, Marita, thank you so much for a wonderfully lucid navigation for us around a series of massively important, really visible, but sometimes extremely complicated issues and conflicts. I'm Carmela. Thanks so much for listening. And you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for having me.